Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a world of heightened Cold War tensions, where America's new enemy was the evil Soviet Empire, there were few limits on where vital intelligence could be sourced. From double agents to organized crime, family members to close friends. If a member of the US Central Intelligence Agency could get information out of you, they would. This was no more true than when it came to dealing with former Nazis. I'm your host, James Rogers, and as part of our special CIA miniseries here on the Warfare Podcast, I'm joined by Professor Norm Goda. Norm is the co-author of Hitler's Shadow. Nazi war criminals, US intelligence, and the Cold War, and he was integral to the groundbreaking US investigation into the use of former Nazis by the CIA. By utilizing Norm's remarkable access to declassified CIA records, he provides us with an unbelievable insight into the secret network of former Nazi agents that were funded and controlled by the CIA across Europe. As you can imagine, funding Nazis and trusting their intel didn't always go to plan. Hi, Norm. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Good to hear. Where in the world are you? I'm at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Very nice. Not a bad place to spend the winter at all. And it makes sense that you're based there, I guess. You, you spent many years now writing on Hitler and war crimes and the Holocaust and the Nazis who joined US intelligence. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there must have been a few based in Florida during the Cold War, especially with the rocket program there and Cape Canaveral, which was an Air Force station. So that during the Cold War, there may have been one or two Nazis is floating around in Florida. There may have been. Under the Eisenhower administration, the rocket scientists under Werner von Braun were based at Fort Hunt, actually, in Alabama. Oh, I see. Actually, I've just come back from Air Force Base Maxwell in Alabama, and yeah, they don't really promote that too much, as you can imagine. But Werner von Braun was the pioneer of German rocketry, right? He was V1s and V2s. Yes, mostly V2s, and he was in very high demand, of course, after the war. And it's a very well-known story. It was called Operation Paperclip under President Harry Truman. And the idea was to get not only German rocket technology, but German propulsion and other forms of technology that could be useful in the Cold War as well. And let's also be clear, all of that technological development, the marvels that were achieved, I suppose you could say, during the Second World War were all built off the back of horrendous slave labor conditions and the use of those who were tormented and imprisoned by the Nazis to construct these massive test sites and bases where the rockets were launched from. Yeah, the Dora camp in central Germany was where tunnels were built so that the V2s could be constructed. And in fact, there was a fairly well-known case in the 1980s of a rocket engineer named Arthur Rudolph, who, it was said, 
was instrumental in designing the Saturn V rocket. And in the 1980s, Rudolph's past was discovered by the Office of Special Investigations, which was a Nazi hunting unit established in 1979 within the Department of Justice. And it was discovered, among other things, that Rudolph had called for the use of more slave labor. Rudolph was visited by members of the Office of Special Investigations, and he was invited to leave the country and turn in his passport in Germany. At that point, he didn't have a passport, so he actually had to get one, and he flew to Dusseldorf, and he handed in his passport to an American consulate there, thereby surrendering his citizenship. And by doing this, he avoided years of litigation, but he kept his social security. And this was the deal that the Office of Special Investigations made because they understood that these court cases for denaturalization went through several stages and several appeals and could take a number of years. And they offered to spare Rudolph a great deal of embarrassment and litigation by allowing him to keep his Social Security if he would just leave the country. So this is something that we found in declassified records in the early 2000s. The Office of Special Investigations did not want that out at the time, and so we weren't allowed to publish it. But the Associated Press had a story on it two, three years ago or something like that. But anyway, that's how that one ended. Wow. Well, we've already hit the ground running on this topic, Norm. But, um, you know, it is our special CIA month here on the Warfare Podcast. And as part of this, I wanted to look at some lesser-known aspects of the CIA, And as you've just been saying there, I think that one of these is probably the fact that there were uh, quite a lot of Nazis in the CIA from the point it was established. And this is a secret that was kept quite poorly until at least the early 2000s when investigations started to properly take place. But give us a bit of context here, Norm. Why is it that the CIA would want to recruit Nazis 75 years ago? In the 1970s, it was revealed that the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps had hired a Nazi fugitive named Klaus Barbie. Barbie had been a relatively low-level Gestapo figure, but he was the chief of the Gestapo in occupied Lyon in southern France, which was really the center of the French resistance. And he was notorious for torturing resistors and other civilians. He was notorious for deporting resistors to the Ravensbrück camp for women and the Buchenwald and Dachau camp for men. He was notorious also for brutal counterinsurgency operations in the French countryside. And he was also known to have deported Jews, including one group of hidden Jewish children. It turned out that Barbie was in Bolivia because he had worked for the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps from 1947 to 1951. And as the French authorities were closing in on him in American-occupied Bavaria, the Americans put him in what was called a rat line, where he was given a new identity and passage to South America, in this case, with his family. And he resurfaced in Bolivia, where he did a number of things. 
In any event, when Barbie was discovered in Bolivia in the 1970s, it was also discovered that he had worked for the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps. And when Barbie was finally extradited to France in 1983, the U.S. Department of Justice came out with a book of narrative and documents called The U.S. Army and Klaus Barbie, which I think at this point is available online. And so there was always the question in the 1980s and after uh, about how many Barbies were there. Was this simply a one-off case? Or was the hiring of former Gestapo, SS, SD, something that was more systematic? At the same time, the question was coming up in the 1990s about what the U.S. government's intelligence agencies knew about the Holocaust as it was happening and when did they know it? And, and the momentum behind these two questions resulted in a congressional act in 1998 called the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. And what the act called for was for every U.S. government agency, including the intelligence agencies, to make public, to hand over to the National Archives all of their records having to do with the Holocaust and the use or relationships with Nazi war criminals afterwards. And so the State Department, the FBI, the Pentagon, and of course the CIA and some other agencies too, were obliged to hand over records that had not yet been declassified. Now, in the CIA's case, there was a lot of resistance and foot dragging and, and that sort of thing. Every agency reacted differently to the law. I firmly believe that the FBI saw this as a chance to clean out their basement, um, and they turned over a um, tremendous amount of material. The Pentagon was reasonably cooperative, um, but the CIA did not really have a culture by which they turned over records to the public. And so there was a fair amount of foot dragging. But eventually, the CIA made available something like 1,100 files, which was really unprecedented. And if you took all of the um, records as a whole, by about 2005, 2006, about 8 million pages of records were turned over which is the largest targeted declassification in U.S. history. And the CIA's part of that was to turn over something like 1,100 files. And the majority of these, I would say, are name files on given individuals. Others were subject files, such as Nazis in South America, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, it, you know, there's really a tremendous trove of records, which we began using. I should say that there was a government group put together to oversee this. And the group had four independent historians, Richard Brightman, who was a prominent Holocaust historian, Timothy Naftali, who was a very prominent intelligence historian, Robert Wolf, who was an archivist and was very familiar with captured German records after World War II, and myself. And we were to report to Congress, and our report is a book called U.S. Intelligence and the Nazis that came out in 2005. And we were looking for areas where 
we could develop signposts for other historians that they could take up in the years ahead. And we were also looking for self-contained stories. That's the story of all of this. That is incredible, Norm. Well, I cannot wait to dig deep into your mind and hear all the things that you came across when you were studying these papers. But I guess the first question for you is, you know, the CIA is a top secret organization. You're right. They're not used to sharing stuff with the public. So was their dragging of their feet more to do with the fact that they just didn't want to share information and set that important precedent? Or did they have a lot to hide? I don't know that they had a great deal to hide. There are things in the files that are not particularly complementary to the CIA. On the other hand, you know, the war in Iraq was going on when a lot of these fights were being held. And there were people in the CIA who I think really believed that you just don't reveal sources and methods. And a lot of these files had to do with human intelligence, right? And at the time, the CIA made the argument, I don't know the extent to which they really believed it, that if we turn over these records to you, former members of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq who are working with us will not want to work with us anymore because they'll see that we turn over the secrets. Our argument at the time was, yeah, but these secrets are six decades old and all of the principles are dead. So there was sort of a tussle back and forth. And the CIA originally released about 800 files, many of which were very heavily redacted. You could figure out what was in them if you spent enough time, but there were other things that you just couldn't tell. And after some more argument and negotiation, they did a second release, some of the same files, but other new files with far fewer redactions that historians could actually use. Wow. Right. Well, take us back to the birth of the CIA then. Take us back to that period 75 years ago. Who had the bright idea to start bringing Nazis into the CIA after the war? Well, you know, I should say that all intelligence organizations after the war were interested in interrogating Nazi prisoners. Um, This included British intelligence, French intelligence, certainly Soviet intelligence, and also American army intelligence. And pretty soon after that, U.S. Army counterintelligence. And one of the things you really wanted to know from German members of the SD, which was the SS's intelligence organization, or the Abwehr, which was the armed forces intelligence organization that in 1944 was absorbed into the SS umbrella, and other organizations like that. One of the things that intelligence agencies really wanted from them was just basic information on how their intelligence organization worked. At the time, the Allies and the Soviets, too, were very concerned about continued resistance, stay-behind networks, organizations that were holding out. And so it was really a question of how does this organization work? How is it broken down? Who else is out there? What are they doing? Those sorts of things. But at the same time, as we move from 1945 to 46 and 47, as it becomes clear Uh, that there was friction with the Soviets and worry about the future of Germany, then there was also sort of a desire to learn from former Nazi intelligence officials what they knew about the other side. 
And this was one of the initial attractions, you know, um, even as far back as 1945, but certainly into 1946 and 1947. I'll give you an example. The Soviets had a very successful intelligence ring in Germany, but really throughout Western Europe, called the Red Orchestra, that passed very high-level German economic information and military information to the Soviets, as as well as a, a number of other things. The Gestapo arrested a number of members of the Red Orchestra, but never broke the entire thing. And so one of the things that the British were very interested in, MI5 was very interested in, were the remnants of the Red Orchestra. And they conducted a number of interrogations with Gestapo officials who had combated the Red Orchestra in order to try and figure out if it was still active. And really, American organizations, beginning with the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps, very worried in occupied Germany about everything from a Nazi resurgence to communist cells. And by 1946-1947, the old intelligence hands of the Office of Strategic Service and Army Intelligence G2 had largely gone back home. And you had new people in Germany who really didn't know the lay of the land, in most cases did not know the German language, and they didn't really know what they were dealing with in Germany or occupied Austria. Was there going to be a Nazi resurgence? Were there communist cells? What was the German Communist Party up to? What was the nature of the Soviet occupation? Where were Soviet troops stationed? All of this becomes much more urgent in in 1948 with the Berlin blockade, right? And so the initial thrust of using former German intelligence, not only army intelligence, but also Gestapo SD intelligence, party organizations that had been involved in crimes. The initial thrust here didn't come from the CIA. It came from other organizations on the ground. Now, the CIA was formed in 1947. So it comes into this business after it had already started. And I would say that certainly early on, the CIA was much more careful about who they hired. In many cases with Army CIC, they were hiring not only very dubious characters, but also characters that really didn't know anything about the Soviet Union. This is sort of what we've come to understand about German intelligence during the war. It wasn't very good. Army intelligence was not very good Gestapo intelligence in many cases was not very good. And SD officers were oftentimes not terribly professional either. They tended to lead with ideology. They believed that the Soviets were going to do what they did, not because of any great penetration into the Soviet general staff or anything, but because they thought they would behave like, you know, a bunch of Untermenschen or something like that. And so they led with ideology. But in many cases, they often led with their fists. These were not, by and large, careful interrogators, but schemers who had come up through the system practicing violence on the people that they interrogated. So their skill set was never terribly good. And so oftentimes when the Army Counterintelligence Corps 
would hire former SD or Gestapo officers. They didn't really know who they were hiring because they didn't bother to check. And they eventually figured out that they were getting intelligence reports that were based on newspaper articles and things like that that these intelligence organizations that were made up of former Nazis were basically paper mills. There's a, a wonderful example of a guy named Wilhelm Hötel, who was an SD officer in Budapest during the German occupation when some 435,000 Jews were deported to Auschwitz in the spring and summer of 1944. He offered himself to the Army Counterintelligence Corps and basically said, look, you Americans are new here. You don't know the enemy. Um, we do. We know the language. We've been studying them for years. For a price, I'll do your homework for you. I'll put together organizations and I'll write reports that will be useful to you. And of course, the Army Counterintelligence Corps officers who had spoken to Hotel thought that this was a very good idea. But over time, one of the things they learned was that the reports were useless, that this stuff was common knowledge anyway, that Hotel had hired his own very dubious characters, and that Hotel was probably working for other intelligence agencies, including the Soviets. And so not only were they not terribly useful in terms of the intelligence that they produced, not only were they very unsavory characters to begin with, but there was also the very real chances that they were not just hiring themselves out to the Americans, but they were also hiring themselves out to potential enemies as well. So this entire thing was oftentimes kind of a mess. Airplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you live on a live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You see, this has always been a puzzle to me. I mean, how much do you trust a Nazi? And... I was doing some prep for our talk, doing a bit of research into this, because it has fascinated me, the amount of Nazis that were allowed to then settle in the United States after the Second World War. So I was chatting to Eric Lichtblau, who wrote the book The Nazis Next Door, and he said well, so, you know, up to 10,000 maybe had come over to the United States. But I read one CIA report from 1952 about the Nazi ideologue Emil Augsburg, an officer at the infamous Wannsee Institute, the SS think tank, that was involved in planning the final solution. And they summed him up. They said he's honest and idealist, enjoys good food and wine. He has an unprejudiced mind. Now, I'm sure there's many that would disagree with that account there. But to what extent were the CIA taken in by a number of these Nazis? And did it have counterproductive consequences? Were there many double agents that really undermined the effectiveness of the CIA? Well, this is a, a more complex story. Augsburg was a member of something called the Galen Organization. And, and in order to really understand the CIA and the Nazi past, one sort of has to understand the Galen Organization itself, because this was probably the most important CIA operation in Germany. So Reinhard Galen, General Reinhard Galen, was an army intelligence officer. And from 1942 on, he headed an army intelligence office called Fremdehera Ost, Foreign Armies East. His primary job was to gather intelligence on the Red Army and predict what they were going to do. And between 1942 and the end of the war, General Galen got virtually every prediction wrong. He could collect tactical intelligence, but he never penetrated any Red Army organization. And therefore, he missed completely that the extension of the German army into Stalingrad was fundamentally risky because the Soviets would be able to surround that army and destroy it. And in the summer of 1944, he failed to predict what became the largest Soviet offensive of the war on June 22nd, 1944, a few weeks after D-Day. So he's not your best intelligence analyst. No, then. he wasn't the best. Um, in any event, as the war ground to a halt, 
Galen started to think about his future, and he surrendered himself in Bavaria to the U.S. Army, and he struck a deal with the U.S. Army, whereby he would turn over a trove of records, and he would form a relationship with the U.S. Army, whereby he would provide intelligence on the Red Army. And of course, his handlers in the U.S. Army thought that this was a wonderful arrangement. And they took him and a number of officers back to Virginia, where they wrote reports on the Red Army. And in 1946, they were sent back to Germany, where they formed something called the Galen Organization. This was an intelligence organization under Galen that ostensibly was supposed to provide intelligence on the Red Army. It was supposed to be under U.S. Army control. The U.S. Army was to provide the chocolate bars, the cigarettes, and the nylons that could then be traded for, you know, black market items by which Galen could pay his people. And Galen, in return, would provide intelligence reports on the Soviets. This began as an organization of several hundred. It quickly ballooned to an organization of about 4,000, okay? And Galen had a very loose hiring system. In fact, it's believed that he didn't really pay much attention to it. And so at first they brought in Abwehr officers and other military intelligence people, but then they began to bring in less savory characters, members of the secret field police, which committed all kinds of crimes in the Soviet Union, Gestapo members, members of the SSSD, which had very unsavory pasts as well. All of this was supposed to be overseen by the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army had all of two people overseeing this organization, which quickly ballooned to 4,000 or so. This quickly became a sort of holding a tiger by the tail. They didn't know who Galen was hiring, but they suspected and they arrested several people who were former SSSD and Gestapo. They demanded that Galen turn over his personnel files, which Galen refused to do. And they demanded some accountability in terms of Galen's operations, which Galen refused to provide. So in 1949, the U.S. Army decided that they had had enough of Galen, and they wanted to just get rid of this and wash their hands of it and that sort of thing. And they asked the CIA, would they take over the Galen organization? Now, the CIA was formed in 1947 as a pure intelligence-gathering organization. There were people in the CIA who had served in wartime counterintelligence you know, older hands. And they warned that this guy Galen was a complete idiot, that while he was fairly good at collecting tactical info, he didn't have much of a strategic sense, and he didn't have much of a big picture sense, and that much of the stuff that he had collected during the war had not been terribly useful. And, and so those people said we should have nothing to do with Galen. But there were others in the CIA who said, look, this organization exists whether we want it to exist or not. It was 1949. 
the Berlin blockade began in 1948. And by October of 1949, you had a West German state. Galen was sort of floating around among the people who were going to be leaders in that state, sort of collecting allies. And then when that state came into being, Galen made himself very close with the federal chancellor's office and had alliances there. So the CIA had to consider all of that. There was a guy named Donald Critchfield. Critchfield was a very respected military officer during World War II, and he was a member of the CIA in 1949. And in, in that year, he was given a month to try and evaluate the Galen organization and to make a recommendation as to whether the CIA should take it on. He had his doubts. You know, he asked Galen point blank, who are you hiring? Are you hiring any war criminals? And Galen said, not a one. And then Galen also trumpeted up his expertise. And, and Critchfield came away from this not really knowing the whole story. But he said, look, the organization exists. It can become a hostile organization to us. You know, Galen is a former Wehrmacht officer. It can also become the intelligence agency of a future German state. It behooves us to keep tabs on this as much as we can. And with one eye shut and one eye opened, the CIA took on the Galen organization as a wholly owned subsidiary, hoping that they could actually control it. Okay, the headquarters of Galen's organization was in this place called Pulach, this sort of remote area in Bavaria. The CIA set up a Pulach operations base to sort of keep tabs on Galen. The problem was Galen was no more cooperative with the CIA than he was with the Army Counterintelligence Corps. When Critchfield asked to see personnel files, Galen refused. One of the other things that Galen said he would do that Critchfield insisted on was to limit his operations to the Soviet occupation zone of Germany, basically what became East Germany. But of course, Galen had operations going on in Romania, in Hungary, in Austria, and a number of other places. Galen was supposed to scale those back, and he never did that either. He simply demanded more money, and he told the Americans that they didn't know what they were talking about, that there was a certain German way of doing things, that the Americans were newbies in the business of intelligence and counterintelligence, and that they should just pay the organization, take the reports that they got, and keep their mouth shut. So this was always a very difficult relationship. It's almost unbelievable, Norm, that you've got the CIA funding an organization which most certainly contains Nazi war criminals and kind of letting them have carte blanche to do what they like across different regions of Europe. This surely, this ends up being counterproductive. Well, not only that, the CIA suspected that the Soviets had agents within the Galen organization, that the real security risks within the Galen organization were former Gestapo and SD officers who the Soviets could blackmail, right? Or who the Soviets could turn because they were simply unscrupulous characters, right? 
that despite their Nazi ideology, they would be perfectly happy to work for the Soviets that the Soviets were paying them to. And it turned out that this was right. And so one of the first things that the CIA did with the Pulak operations base was to begin penetrating the Galen organization. So, so you had this wholly owned subsidiary under the CIA that the CIA did not necessarily trust. And almost from the very start, they were running operations against the Galen organization to see who Galen was hiring, if they were reliable, if they were unreconstructed Nazis, or if they were unreconstructed Nazis who happened also to be selling secrets to the Soviets as well. And what they began to find was that the organization was in fact riddled with former Nazis who were doing all kinds of unsavory things, and some of whom were in fact working for the Soviets as double agents. And this is a penetration operation that goes in a lot of fits and starts, you know, from, say, 1950 or so until the whole thing blows up in 1961. And the biggest disaster was this. Galen's organization had a counterintelligence office whose job it was to study the Soviets and uncover Soviet spies and make predictions as to Soviet moves, okay? This counterintelligence section within the Galen organization was riddled with SD officers who were working for the Soviets, okay? And there was one person in particular named Heinz Felfa. Heinz Felsa was an SS officer. He had joined the SS in 1936, and he had joined SS Foreign Intelligence in 1943. He had worked against the Red Orchestra in Switzerland, and he had conducted operations in the Netherlands, too. He was from Dresden. Dresden, of course, was heavily bombed, firebombed by the Allies in February of 1945. And there was this contingent of SD officers from Dresden who joined the Galen organization after they had already been recruited by the Soviets. They worked in counterintelligence. Now, in Falfa's case, it would seem that he was an ardent Nazi during the Nazi period, but that he had no problem working against the West Germans and the Americans in the post-war period, and that what he really liked was getting paid, and what he really liked was the game of running bold operations and pulling the wool over people's eyes and that sort of thing. Let me just try and get my head around this, Norm. So you have the Galen organization that is being paid for by the CIA. So we're talking about taxpayers' money here. American taxpayers' money is being used to fund this organization full of Nazis. And in the one particular part of the organization which you want to have people that are pretty loyal to you in it, the counterintelligence section, it is full. It is a hive of double agents that are basically writing what the Soviet Union want them to and then passing that back to the United States. And that goes on for, what, 15 years? As early as 1949, 
The head of Galen's counterintelligence unit was a guy named Alfred Benzinger. Benzinger had been a member of the secret field police on the Eastern Front, which committed a lot of crimes. He was working for the Soviets, and he recruited other Germans into the unit who were working for the Soviets as well. One of these was a guy named Willy Krischbaum, who was a member of the secret field police and was hired into West German counterintelligence in 1948. And Krischbaum, in turn, hired Felfa and a number of others. So this is something that kind of builds. Felfa began working for Galen in 1951. He was not uncovered until 1961. So this is a 10-year period. And if you go back to the beginning of CIA involvement, it's actually a 12-year period, right, in which the CIA is funding an organization that not only has a number of Nazi war criminals in it, but has Nazi war criminals who are working for the Soviets in the most sensitive wing of the organization, counterintelligence. Their job was to run counterintelligence operations against the Soviets. What they did was to run fake counterintelligence operations against the Soviets, whereby pawns would be uncovered, right? While the serious penetration of the Galen organization and other West German agencies went merrily on. So all of this is very bureaucratic in the way that we're talking about it in terms of organizations and structures. And that's incredibly important for us to understand what's going on. But, you know, where the rubber starts to meet the tarmac when it comes to actual missions that the CIA are trying to successfully complete, does this have a detrimental effect on the effectiveness of the CIA? Do you see CIA agents put in harm's way, killed? Do you see those that are allied to the United States at this point, left in perilous situations? It was a tremendous problem. And, you know, the CIA had an inkling that there was a problem within Galen's counterintelligence office. And in fact, they had begun to study the issue in the early 1950s. But then in 1959, a communist defector named Peter Deryabin showed up in the West and said that the Soviets have a mole in West German counterintelligence. And again, the man's name was Heinz Felfa. Now, by 1958, Felfa was not only blowing West German counterintelligence operations against the Soviet Union, he had also ingratiated himself with the CIA. And he had, in fact, made a trip to the CIA where he gave a lecture on counterintelligence and began running joint operations with the CIA's Berlin operations base. This guy's lecturing to the CIA. He's teaching the CIA. Yes, and there were people in the CIA who simply could not imagine that he was a double agent because he never matched the description of somebody, you know, in the bottom floor, sneaking papers out of the building, microfilming them and passing them to somebody on a park bench. This guy was actually running counterintelligence, big operations, right? And seemed to be a real pro at what he was doing. And he was a real pro at what he was doing. And so part of this was just a failure of imagination. But there had always been a little bit of suspicion of him because he loved to ask questions. 
and he loved to ask questions about things that were ostensibly none of his business. But when this defector Derry Aubin showed up in 1959 and said that somebody in the Galen organization is passing secrets not only from the Galen organization, but also from the CIA, the CIA became very interested in FELFA. The problem was they couldn't get Galen to do anything because the level of FELFA's counterintelligence operations had built Galen's reputation with Chancellor Conrad Adenauer and the entire chancellor's office. And so Galen had been protected by the chancellor. At the same time, he really didn't want to admit to the chancellor's office that he was such an idiot as to hire this mole back in 1951 and that this guy had been blowing agents and operations ever since. Eventually, Felfa got arrested. You know, at first, Galen wanted to just shunt him off in his own office and isolate him and sort of hide the problem. But eventually, Felfa got arrested in 1961, and he was put on trial for treason in 1963. And at that point, the entire lid blows off. Right, I see. But the CIA wrote a damage report after Shelf's arrest. Enlighten us to that damage report, Norm. It was to the effect that this has been a complete disaster. Not only were German operations completely wrecked and German agents all over East Germany blown, But the Berlin operations base of the CIA had its operations wrecked and hundreds of agents blown as well. They couldn't even assess the damage, right? And the man who wrote this damage assessment, a man named David Murphy, said, I don't know if there is a German damage assessment, but if there is, it must run into hundreds and hundreds of pages. In any event, this was the end of Galen. But this was the big CIA operation in post-war Germany, was the Galen organization. And I did leave out one thing. In 1956, with German rearmament having begun, Galen had maneuvered the German government into making his organization, the foreign intelligence organization. There were other contenders for this. Okay, so from that moment onward, the Galen organization was called the Bundesnachrichtendienst, or the Federal Intelligence Service. And it was no longer under the CIA. It was theoretically under the German government. But this meant it was independent of the CIA, and the CIA continued to try and penetrate the Galen organization wherever it could. But now, by 1956, Galen really didn't have to listen to the CIA. And so, you know, it it just became sort of a Frankenstein's monster that was inadvertently created by the U.S. Army that the CIA took on for lack of better alternatives in 1949, that it never really controlled, that was infiltrated by a number of SS, Gestapo, SD officers with criminal pasts, and ultimately was taken down by the Soviets because the Soviets got to these officers. So it was an intelligence disaster of the First Order. So Galen is this German officer in the Second World War 
who gets some of the biggest intelligence decisions that you can possibly imagine wrong in terms of invading the Soviet Union, and then ends up being not only the head of a sub-CIA organization, but then the head, basically, of West German intelligence. Yes. And it all comes crumbling down. This is an incredible story. What happens to Galen? Galen was forced into retirement. Makes sense. He, He wrote a very imaginative memoir by which he ran a sparkling clean organization with very careful vetting of officers and that sort of thing. But over time, the truth came out. I like to think that one of the results of the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act is that the Bundesnachrichtendienst, um, German federal intelligence, has begun to release its records on the Galen organization. And it began doing this in 2011. And it has an independent commission of historians that has been writing about the Galen organization and the level by which it was infiltrated by war criminals from the Nazi period and the level to which it got some things right, but an awful lot completely wrong. Wow. So this history is still living. It's still being unearthed and we're finding out so much. Well, Norm, thank you for coming on the podcast. I mean, it's difficult to take hundreds of thousands of pages, millions of words that you've been reading over the years with your expert group to to bring these reports to light, to bring this history to light, and then to condense it down into a podcast. But you've really given us a flavour of some of the controversies, but also the pragmatic decisions that were made by the CAA as to why they went down this path of recruiting Nazis in the first place, whether history looks on it as being right or wrong. You have to tell us because you've really just given us the perfect introduction. Where can people read more about this? The Galen organization is a good story. There are other individual instances of the CIA hiring former Gestapo and SD just sort of on their own for individual operations. They aren't as splashy. They aren't as disastrous. But I do want to say this. There were two narratives of this story before the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. One was that U.S. intelligence organizations hired just a few bad apples. It was more than a few bad apples, okay? But the other that I think we really have to confront is this idea that it was a Faustian bargain, that yes, This or that intelligence organization, the CIC, the CIA, whomever, hired agents who had criminal pasts. And yet the yield that came from it all was so important to national security that it was worth the bargain. And one of the things I try to offer, and one of the things that we tried to offer in U.S. intelligence and the Nazis, was that this was never a Faustian bargain. Because the intelligence yield generally wasn't very good. There was a hope that the intelligence yield would be something. But in hiring Nazi intelligence officers, you were basically hiring thugs. You weren't hiring careful, deliberate intelligence men. You know, you you were hiring men who had a very ideological view of the world. You were hiring men who were very bitter about the German defeat. You were hiring men who were in it for the money, 
and you were hiring men who fundamentally had none of the skills that one needed for counterintelligence work. This is very slow, very deliberate, long-term kinds of work. These were guys whose skill set was often to beat people up and get answers, and whose skill set was simply to produce reports. And so what you got in a lot of these cases were guys who didn't know anything and were really just paper mills. Look, the CIA, when they took Galen on, in 1949, said 90% of this guy's reports are absolutely useless. He can get tactical intelligence, but he doesn't understand how to penetrate the Soviet organizations, and he will never be able to get the kind of strategic intelligence that we're really looking for. So the point I really want to make is there was no Faustian bargain here. Occasionally, you got something that was useful. More often than not, you got stuff that was useless. And from time to time, you hired people who were working for the Soviets at the same time. Wow. You know, your findings there, I mean, if they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I'm very sure that throughout the Cold War and post 9-11, the CIA were doing similar sorts of things in recruiting the wrong sort of people. And hopefully, the history that you've been able to bring to light helps us learn those lessons and actually, you know, makes these agencies more effective into the future. And what we're going to do, Norm, is we'll put a link to US intelligence and the Nazis into our show notes so people can go out there they can buy it and they can read far, far more about this in far more detail than we're able to do today. Norm, thank you so much for your time. Sure thing. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.